Hi everyone, my name is Alex and I'm going to read the Bible for us now. So if you want to turn to page 8 of your zines, I'm going to read Proverbs 9, 10 to 18. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead." And the second reading is John 8, 31 to 36. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, My name's Craig. I'm the minister here at Garrison, and uh, a special welcome from me uh, to you on this afternoon. And uh, here we are getting towards the end of this series that we've been exploring for five weeks, but I think it's been a really valuable and helpful journey for us. I'm going to pray for us now. Joey led us in just a great prayer that just helped centered us towards God's character and his goodness, and I'm just going to say a prayer now that wherever you find yourself this afternoon, that, um, that God may speak to you through his spirit as we reflect on his word. So let's pray. Uh, Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, wherever we find ourselves at this afternoon, uh, we pray that your word will speak into our lives, uh, that as a community we may speak into each other's lives uh, gospel words that lead us to the truth. And so just be amongst us now and encourage us and build us up uh, through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was in my 20s, I warmed towards a Christian writer called Brennan Manning. His book, Ragamuffin Gospel, captured my heart. Uh, It was his language, it was his turn of phrase, uh, his understanding of Christian faith. And perhaps it was a prophecy of where God would lead me in the following years. Who knows? Uh, But the opening to his book had a preface. And this is what the preface read, the opening to Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, the Ragamuffin Gospel was written with a specific reading audience in mind. This book is not for the super spiritual. It is not for muscular Christians who have made John Wayne and not Jesus their hero. It's not for academics who would imprison Jesus in the ivory tower of exegesis. It's not for noisy, feel-good folks who manipulate Christianity into a naked appeal to emotion. 
It's not for hooded mystics who want magic in their religion. It's not for Alleluia Christians who live only on the mountaintop and have never visited the Valley of Despair. It is not for the fearless and tearless. It's not for the red-hot zealots who boast with the rich young ruler of the Gospels, all these commandments I have kept since my youth. It is not for the complacent who hoist over their shoulders a tote bag of honours, diplomas and good works, actually believing that they have made it. It's not for the legalists who would rather surrender control of their souls to rules than run the risk of living in union with Jesus. If anyone is still reading along, the ragamuffin gospel was written for the bedraggled, beat up and burnt out. It is for the sorely burdened who are still shifting the heavy suitcase from one hand to another. It's for the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together and are too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. It is for inconsistent, unsteady disciples whose cheese is falling off its cracker. It is for poor, weak, sinful men and women with hereditary faults and limited talents. It's for earthen vessels who shuffle along on feet of clay. It is for the bent and the bruised who feel that their lives are a grave disappointment to God. It is for smart people who know they're stupid and honest disciples who admit they are scallywags. The Ragamuffin Gospel is a book I wrote for myself and anyone who has grown weary and discouraged along the way. Somehow he had me hooked in those opening pages. Further into reading this book, I found out that Brennan Manning had experienced a long battle himself with alcohol abuse. He'd been sober for a long time, but he'd also experienced several pretty severe relapses. His writing had a certain perspective about it, which God has used to shape my own faith journey ever since. Uh, in another of his books, Abba's Child, Manning writes, to live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. And I guess this is what our series, Messy Faith, is all about. And I start with Brendan Manning as a word of hope, entering this week's topic of addiction. Because he is a man whose addiction led him into a deep humility and dependence on God's unending grace. God is present in our mess. That is the message of the Bible. And he who has started a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For some people, addiction, uh, as we come to this topic this week, it's kind of a thing that is just uh, out there on the streets or in the dark corners of our city. But the truth is, most addiction is found crippling the lives of men and women uh, in the boardrooms and the top offices of our city. Uh, it's amongst school staff rooms and behind the dazzling lights of the entertainment industry. It's found in the lounge rooms of middle-class homes and the balconies of upper-class Sydney. It's found in our churches and in our family circles. And so it's more than appropriate 
that we explore it as part of our messy faith journey. Um, How do we approach thinking about addiction? Well, there are a squillion definitions for addiction out there, as Sam probably started to find on his Google search. Uh, One I've landed on in the mental health texts I've been reading puts it this way. Addiction is a substance use disorder that involves a complex web of cognitive, behavioural, psychological symptoms leading the individual to continue using a substance despite its destructive effects on their life. A couple of things to note with this description. Firstly, the opening phrase, substance use disorder. Um, In truth, we're all substance users. Uh, You have a coffee on the way to work. You have a Panadol when you have a headache. You enjoy a glass of wine with dinner. You are a substance user. But for the large part, it doesn't have a negative effect on your health uh, or your life, nor are you dependent upon it. A substance use disorder involves the use of any substance that leads to detrimental health effects, physical, social, physiological, financial. And by far the most common substance that is abused in Australia uh, is alcohol. The figures are pretty clear on that. And I guess you could say that at one end of the spectrum, uh, we have sort of social drinkers who say they can go dry if they want, but just never do. Uh, And then down the other end of the spectrum, you have heavy drinkers uh, who binge for days on end on alcohol in self-destructive spirals. And then the truth is, there's lots in between. Uh, Other substances, though, not just alcohol, include nicotine, cannabis, methamphetamine, ecstasy, cocaine, heroin. All of these are actually labelled illicit substances because they are deemed illegal by our government. Now, while addiction and substance abuse go hand in hand with most definitions, uh, some will say that substance abuse could be just a little bit too much of a narrow lens, and we could perhaps broaden it out to any habitual pattern that is destructive. Uh, Addictive patterns outside substance abuse um, include a whole range of things. Uh, It could be the habitual viewing of pornography. It could be excessive exercise whose habitual need actually inhibits relationships. It could be online gaming that isolates a player from the real world. Uh, It could be the habitual need for risky and random sexual encounters. It could be habitual gambling in all its form, betting on the horses, on the footy, playing the pokies, hitting up the casino. These can all carry aspects of addiction with them and they can all in their own way be incredibly destructive. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 1, when writing about our estrangement from God, the Apostle Paul writes, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who's forever praised. Amen. (laughs) Uh, For those who are currently experiencing a form of addiction or have in the past, I think it's fair to say from personal experience that it does feel like a form of worship in the sense that it it can take up your whole horizon. 
And in trying to capture this, Christian psychologist Ed Welsh defines addictions this way. And you'll notice a bit more of a faith element in this definition. He defines it as a bondage to the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth, so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. Of course, it's easy to wonder as we reflect on all this, why would anyone continue with a habit or using a substance when it's destroying their life? And the answer that many give is that addiction actually becomes a form of slavery. Uh, The particular substance or habit starts out at what appears for us to be a helpful servant, giving us some sort of experience that we value. That's why we go to it. But it ends up becoming a terrible master as we lean on it more and more and the focus of control in our lives begins to shift. Um, The causes of addiction can be diverse as the human condition, like much of the things we're exploring. But people have sought to understand it in different ways. And to focus our thinking, it can sort of be helpful to start with potentially the two polar opposite camps. On one end, you have the belief that addiction is wholly a physical disease. And on the other, that addiction is wholly a moral choice. It's kind of two ends of the spectrum. However, many have observed that this kind of presents a false dichotomy. Certainly, there's been many uh, who have identified addiction primarily as biological. When seen in this light, addiction is categorized as a brain disease. Uh, There's good reasons for that. And it results in compulsive behavior and is accompanied by the twin factors of tolerance and withdrawal. But in more recent times, the limiting of addiction to just medical biological categories has been resisted. Uh, And attempts have been made to understand it more holistically, labeling it as substance dependence or addiction. Whilst addiction most definitely has physiological components, Uh, It can also have deep emotional and spiritual aspects to it. We are often seeking something in our addictive state, returning to that which promised to give us that thing that we felt we were lacking. This is why healing from addiction is truly a whole person journey, which is really what comes out every week of this series. Physical, cognitive, emotional, behavioural, spiritual. And its treatment requires doctors, counsellors, friends, ministers, family. Uh, The effects of substance abuse can be really broad, from the physical health effects of major organ damage, depending on the substance, to the social effects of isolation as one disconnects themselves to spend more time with their chosen substance or habit, Uh, to mental health illness, such as depression. depression. But indeed, mental health illness and addiction uh, are kind of good friends. But each situation is unique in terms of which one leads to the other. And of course, in some cases, the tragic toll of addiction is actually the loss of life itself. You know, when we survey the impact of addictive behaviour there is a real sense that this is not the way things are meant to be. 
There's a sense, I think, where we are witnessing or experiencing the tangible curse of sin in our world. Because Jesus describes us, humans, you and I, as being designed, put together for connection with our God, with ourselves, and with others. But addictions enslave us, usually resulting in separation in all of these areas. Uh, Many of you know my own story. If you're new with us tonight, you'll kind of get glimpses of it. But uh, in my own stretch of self-destructive behavior, um, I found all of that. I shifted from being social to kind of being a virtual recluse. Um, This is going back some years, but I only hung out with people I could drink and smoke with. Um, And that limited it to three people. So I saw them a lot, but I really didn't see anyone else. Uh, Most importantly, I just spent time by myself, uh, watching TV series, Scrubs, Breaking Bad, West Wing, uh, drinking bottles of wine. Um, After a couple of years of this, um, I was sapped of all my passion and motivation, and the man God had created me to be and the potential I had to really love others seemed to be completely drained from my interaction with the world. Destructive habitual patterns really do lead us away from all that is life, especially life described to us in the Bible. And of course, there's one other feature of addiction that is almost always present in the experience, and that is secrecy. Uh, We hide. Um, Hiding our habit is usually always part of the equation, and hiding is often the fruit of a deep, shame that corrupts our sense of self as image bearers of God. It's as if we know we probably shouldn't be reliant on this thing as much as we are, and so we hide the use or practice of it. And this hiding is usually always accompanied by lies and deception. And the greatest deception is the one we have within ourselves. Uh, We tell ourselves, it's fine. I can stop whenever I want. It's not that bad. It's just the way I cope with stress. It's not affecting my work. But of course, the lies then move outwards as we hide and deceive other people about our actions, our whereabouts, our real problems. In the ancient book of Proverbs, it presents two women hosting a banquet. The book of Proverbs is fantastic, and it frames it up, two women hosting a banquet. You've got woman wisdom and woman folly. Uh, Chapter 9 says that the wise dine with woman wisdom, and there they will find insight, truth, and the fear of the Lord. But hear what it says about the banquet woman folly lays out. It's there in our first Bible reading. Verse 13, folly is an unruly woman. She's simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to all those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house, to those who have no sense. She says, stolen water is sweet, and food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there. Her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Ultimately, 
all addictions can be described as banquets in the grave. They provide something that feels incredibly good, but they leave us lifeless and worn out. And so it's worth asking, what's the way forward? Personally, perhaps for you or for those we love. Well, it's interesting. For some time, people in the health industry have used a resource called the cycle of change to monitor the way forward for someone who's seeking change. And this could be change in anything, right? It's not just do with addictions. There are six components to the cycle of change. And do you know what the first three all involve? The first three all involve reaching the point of realizing that you actually have a problem and deciding that to take action. That is, the whole first half of the entire cycle is just identifying the problem for what it really is and getting to the point of saying, things need to change. And I guess that's the nature of destructive habitual patterns. They are habitual, which means often we are blind to them and how much better life could be without them. And so the first step, and I know this is so cliche, but it's true, the first step in a profound way in any movement forward is identifying that there is a problem. And the scariest part of this is that whilst it's the first step towards healing, you know it also means you may need to stop doing the thing that you've been relying on for so long. And that is an incredibly daunting notion. But it is the first step. And the second step in healing is admitting to someone else that you have a problem. This is also scary. Uh, because in doing so, we're forced to reveal our weakness. And in some circumstances, there can also be a lot of shame carried with it. And yet this step can be equally liberating when we are met with a friend who loves us as we are and is willing to actually move forward with us towards some experience of freedom. The third step is to seek some structured support, depending on what your particular experience is and depending on the form of destructive habit, but it could involve speaking with your GP, a counsellor or psychologist, coming to chat with me as your pastor, and then from there, we start to just plan a way forward. And if you find yourself today stuck in a destructive pattern, um, I urge you just to consider taking a first step forward, to pray over it, to consider what your life may look like without it. Even that's a good first step. Of course, this is a holistic journey, and as we're reflecting upon all of this, you might be thinking, from a faith perspective, what part does confession of sin and repentance play in this sort of journey? And I would say a big part. Of course, simply to say to someone who's struggling with something like this, just stop sinning and it'll be fixed, is a little short-sighted. But one of the unexpected blessings of, in fact, all mental health problems 
is the opportunity, sometimes the forced reality, that empties us of all our pride and removes all our masks and has us humbling, humbly sitting with the grace of God. I found the work of Greg Welsh in his book on addictions really helpful here. He writes this. He says, in the Bible, sin is more than just self-conscious rebellion against God. It is also a blinding power that wants to control and enslave us. With addictions and destructive habits, we are both hopelessly out of control and shrewdly calculating. Victimized, yet responsible. This is a paradox, to be sure, but one that is the very essence of all sinful habits. You see, if we deny the out-of-control nature of addiction, then we end up telling people just to stop it, and we are little, of little help to them, just like asking the non-swimmer to swim. But if we deny the in-control, purposeful nature of addiction, then we also can cut ourselves off from coming humbly before God in repentance to the very place where we can find our deepest healing. And so therefore it seems the way forward is both structured care as well as honest, humble repentance. It's interesting to note the progression of Jesus' words in John chapter 2, our second Bible reading. He describes sin in this text in that form of slavery. That is, the image of that which holds us down, binds us up, leaves us distant from the connections that will give us true life. Now certainly in John chapter 8, it's important to note that Jesus is not making direct reference to addiction. But he reveals something that is key, I think, for all of us to hear. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day who believed that through their birth line, they are automatically located as part of God's eternal people. Like being raised with Christian parents and assuming that you're just all covered. But Jesus cuts through it all in John chapter 8. He says, if you're a human being, that's the everyone in verse 34, you are a slave to sin. That is, you are caught in a cycle of self-determination that doesn't rest in God's plan and God's grace. What do the religious leaders do in John 8? Well, they do the same thing addicts often do. They deny. No, we're not slaves. We don't need to be set free. We're Abraham descendants. You yourself, uh, God willing, may never face any significant addiction or destructive behavior. But the journey of real Christian faith involves all of us hitting rock bottom. And it's a beautiful place to be. Because from there, you can see things as they really are. You see, perhaps for the first time, that you really do need the grace of God and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus. In his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, Manning writes this. He says, Christians who remain in hiding continue to live the lie. We deny the reality of our sin. In a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, 
Our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. We cling to our bad feelings and beat ourselves with the past when what we should do is let go. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, guilt is an idol. But when we dare to live as forgiven men and women, we join the wounded healers and draw closer to Jesus. Addiction or not, our God calls all of us to walk the liberating journey of repentance and forgiveness. To stop pretending, to start receiving, and to dare to live as forgiven men and women. And this is the beautifully honest Christian life, lived in community with others. So as we finish today, I wonder how as a community or even as individuals, can we help those who might be struggling in destructive behaviours, in addiction? And I guess my opening reflection on this, although there's so much, and we'll keep exploring this in the coming months, but much like depression and trauma that we've already, uh, we've already covered over these last few weeks, if we're seeking to walk alongside and help someone, to love them dearly, then you really do have to strap on your stack hat, gather, gather a support network, order a case of Gatorade, because it can be a long journey. Uh, it took me three years to get to the place of realizing that I had a real problem that must be acted upon. And then it took another three years of actively seeking change with all the ups and downs that kind of brought me to the place I'm at. So you may want to throw in a couple of ga cases of Gatorade because that's a six-year journey. Because it's often such a long journey, caring for someone who is struggling in this area involves our own self-care and working hard to establish clear boundaries. You cannot fix the person. You cannot make them stop their destructive habit. You can't change them. That is always and only up to them and the work of God's spirit in their life. But you can love them as Jesus has called you to do. Uh, you can be a friend to them. You can be a listening ear. You can provide non-judgmental observations of behavior that you perceive to be destructive and which you can just express concern over as a friend. Remember, the first three steps for the person is actually identifying a problem that needs acting upon. And so that's going to take some time. As a loving support, you can know that a visit to their GP and arranging time with a counsellor or psychologist who deals with addictions can be of help. And you can remind the person of the value they have as a child of God and how much you value them as a friend and a person. And actually say those words. For some of us, that's really difficult. But to be actually speak into the life of someone and say, I know who you are and I value who you are. And I know you are deeply loved by God. You can pray for them and pray with them. 
and you can hold their hope, reminding them that God never gives up on us. The healing from substance abuse is going to be their journey, not yours. But you can walk with them through that journey. And this is the way we can grow as a Christ-like community, just having the courage to walk alongside each other through these moments. You know, I was really captured by the writing of Brennan Manning long before I had any of my own struggle with alcohol dependence. He always appeared to me to be someone who really understood the grace of God. Not because he abused it, but because he knew it was all he had. That is what he trusted in. And in my story, God has stripped me of all the things that I used to take pride in, and there were quite a few. Um, But now I think he has me right where he wants me. And he may just choose to continue using me for his kingdom work. And maybe that's your story too. And so don't be afraid of the mess. Because God loves to use it for your own growth, for his glory, and maybe even for the transformation of others. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God may lead us in this very thing. Um, Yes, let me just say a prayer for us now. Um, uh, Dear Lord and Father, uh, I have this image in my mind, which has come at some points during these last few weeks, of the Father welcoming home the prodigal son. Uh, Lord, we know that this is an image that your son Jesus gave to us uh, of what your very character is like. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does not give up on us. We are, thank you, that you're a God who welcomes us home when we turn back to you. Uh, Lord, in different ways, all of us find ourselves enslaved, tied down with different things. We get caught up in sinful habits and behavior. And Lord, whether it be small or big, I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on your work for us, that that may be a first step to actually finding freedom. That we may admit problems that we have, knowing that your love for us is secure. Lord, please help us to be honest humble. Please help us to repent of the things we have done wrong. And Lord, help us to have the courage to love others, especially those who find themselves in these tough situations. So we ask that you'll lead us, not just today, but this week and this month, the rest of this year, as we grow as a community together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.